Wear a mask, save a life. The Alexandria Times is promoting a public service campaign to encourage residents to wear face masks when they are in public to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus in our community. Stay safe, stay healthy. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy, the Alexandria Times podcast. As always, I'm your host, Cody Melikline, reporter at The Times, and today I'm joined by James Ross, a musician, uh, sometimes active professor, and most notably music director of the Alexandria Symphony Orchestra. He joined the orchestra as music director during the ASO's 2018 season, and since then he's brought his modern approach to classical music to Alexandria music lovers of all ages. Welcome to the show, Jim. Well, thank you, Cody. Nice to be here. So... There's a lot to cover. You have a very interesting arc of your life and your career, and I'm sure we're going to co- cover a lot of the highlights, but I wanted to start off someplace, I guess it's a, it's also a bit personal for me. I know you're actually from the same neck of the woods as myself, from the kind of Boston, Massachusetts area, right? That's true, actually. I was born in Boston Lying-In Hospital in Boston proper. It's a hospital that doesn't exist anymore. I, I apparently broke the mold. Um, and then moved, moved out to Sudbury, Massachusetts, where I spent my, my whole formative years until uh, I went to Harvard just after that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, 22 years in Boston, and then a few years again later on in my life. From what I understand, music has kind of been a part of your life from pretty early on, right? Uh, that is true. I don't think I'm exceptional in that regard, yeah. except for what was exceptional was that everybody in my family played an instrument. And my parents, neither of them were musicians, but both of them had this really kind of outspoken love for it. And it, with my dad, that expressed itself in his love for love for Hugo Wolf songs. And in my mother, a couple of things, like her mother was an amazing pianist, a collaborative pianist. And her uncle, my great uncle, is a very prominent uh, American composer named Charles Tomlinson Griffiths. So somehow in that bloodline, although it sort of bounced around, um, uh, was a great love for music and from both sides. So there was encouragement for all of us kids to get going. How did you first connect with classical music specifically? Because I know for a lot of kids, it's what they start learning to play. um, But from there, they don't exactly continue doing that. What, What kind of drew you in and kind of kept you interested? That's a really interesting question. Um, It was, yes, I mean, we all had piano. I started on piano. I don't think I loved particularly those little pieces for for piano, but what I did love doing was was imitating melodies, um, inventing little harmonies that would go along with them. Uh, So there was a little bit of a kind of creative approach to the tunes that were all around me. And uh, although, like any household, we were listening to the same stuff that everybody else was uh, in their in the '60s. Um, as I was growing up, I think that for whatever reason, I, I captured something about making a phrase, in other words, shaping notes, that where classical music seemed to be the medium to do that, and it gave me the opportunity to discover that I loved that. And once I figured that out, that I loved, uh, you know, so the encouragement of my teachers, but I loved. That, that ebb and flow and the, and the sway and the following of a melody and the feeling of where it's going and where it's going to land in a way that uh, just made me feel like classical music was my language. And I think I had accepted it as such by the age of uh, maybe 10 or 11, something like that. Um, I mean, I started on piano, did a little recorder, and then moved to trumpet in fourth grade, and then added the horn to the trumpet in sixth grade, and then from seventh grade on, it was was horn only. Um, but And then after that, it was that, that my voice, like who I was, seemed to express itself through this instrument, through the horn, and I started having lots of success at it really early, so it combined, you know, not only just that I was speaking who I was through the instrument, but also the world seemed to be saying, yes, 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 give us more. And um, so I, I kind of defined myself as a little bit of a classical musician, a horn player, at uh, the cost of getting to know lots of other kind of musics. I was sort of uh, like a lot of classical musicians my age, a little narrow, kind of mm-hmm. uh, like, this is my world and I want to be a super expert at it and I'll be more expert by ignoring all of those other Beach Boys songs and things that were around me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, I, I always hear musicians talking about kind of finding their voice. Was there like kind of a, a moment that you felt like that happened or do you still feel like you're sometimes finding your voice? 
That's a good question too. Um, so it was gradual, uh, you know, the evolution towards uh, uh, having my voice come through the instrument. But yeah. more important than like how successfully I was doing that, because that's always evolutionary. Yeah. Like I hope that tomorrow I will be able to speak, you know, speak music better than I do today um, and better than I did 10 years ago. But all of us, classical musicians or maybe any musicians, has a moment that they kind of remember as being like, and something happening inside them. In other words, not to other people, but 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 just a capturing or a, or a gathering of like how much potential there is in music and in bonding with it as a as a player or as a performer. And for me, I definitely remember. I've always thought about this one moment, um, and it wasn't when I was a kid, you know, like around the piano hearing anybody else play. It was one moment. I think when I was in seventh grade, when there was kind of like a, a couple of families were were together, and there was a uh, one of them, our friends, had a pianist who was visiting a friend from England, and so we just decided we'd like you know make her sight read lots and lots of pieces with us. And there was one piece by by Saint-Saëns, a French composer, for horn and piano. And it was, to, and I have a tape of this moment actually, because when I like on a little tape recorder, uh, uh, one of my sisters uh, recorded it, and um, I was just, you know, we, it was awful. Like we were like, sh she couldn't quite read the notes, and I was like all over the place. But but there was one phrase in the in a slow part of it where where the the arc of the melody started to come down, and I remember as it sort of floated down like a leaf to the ground, the end of that phrase. I remember having this feeling suddenly in my belly, like deep in my belly, of how beautiful it was to be in the middle of something where, with the confidence that you knew where it was going to land a couple of bars later. And it made me feel, it gave me this like spiritual rush in a way. And that was my moment of bonding with phrasing. And I think after that, I kind of looked for that potential um, in, you know, every phrase I made. And it took me years and years before I could actually do it. But but some seed had been planted in that moment. So, Yeah, you mentioned that um, you, you found success quite early, or at least people, people were responding to your voice quite early. Obviously, yeah. you, as you mentioned, you went to Harvard. From what you've told me, you also ended up having a pretty early, like pretty significant orchestral experience over over in East Germany as well. Yeah, that was right after Harvard. And, yeah. you know, I mean, like a lot of the formative orchestral experiences were with the great Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, yeah. right right around where, where we grew up. And um, uh, that gave me six years of, or, of orchestral experience. Then I would go to Tanglewood and their programs in the summer. When I went to Harvard, I did a little bit of playing at Harvard in their orchestras, but mm. mostly by then I was already a little bit of a snob, so I was practicing like crazy, and I'd gone to a, to a, a competition in Munich, and I'd won, won a prize. But, uh, but around my junior year of high school, like backing up a couple of years, the Boston Symphony um, was aware of me, and they started to hire me to be a member of the Boston Pops for a week to substitute in, and then the Boston Symphony. So ridiculously... At the age of 16, I started actually playing in a major, major professional orchestra. And it continued 17, 18, through my first year or two at Harvard. So there was something uh, about that that gave me this kind of inherent confidence, like that I, was, that I was way outside the normal career curve of people on the horn. And that just fed on it, on myself. So I just like felt more and more that I was, um, that I was an important horn player. So when I did actually go to East Germany... Uh, at the age of 22 and became the solo horn of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, which is one of the world's major orchestras, frankly. And what I was doing as a little American with 22 years old, I mean, from one point of view, I have no idea. But from the point of view of my own life, it's like, yeah, I'd already played with great orchestras. And this was even greater, I thought, than mm -hmm. any that I had played with. And I was there to study conducting with Mazur. But but I was pretty sure that my six years in Greater Boston Youth Symphony, that my experience with Boston Symphony had set me up to be able to uh, excel as a very young uh, horn player um, in Leipzig. What was it like to be in East Germany, an American in East Germany at the age of 22? That must have been kind of surreal. It was in that there were so few Americans yeah. or actually so few Western people. I mean, I was one of the very few who was working there. There were a lot of people who, um, like my present friends, uh, David Johnson, David and Scarlett Johnson, who weirdly I've reconnected with, but um, they worked for the American consulate in Berlin and they were a little bit of 
charge in charge of me because there were so <laughs> few other they were mostly in charge of business relations but there was also this one you know little american um playing as an east german and being paid as an east german down in leipzig so so they kind of took took care of me or watched over me a little bit but i felt like i was wearing the american flag on my back in a certain way because i was one of the few americans that most east germans had had met um and I'm sure that the Stasi, I know that the uh, Stasi had various people reporting on me to make sure uh, that I wasn't doing this or that. And my, my uh, mentor at that point was the music director named Kurt Mazur. And he told me very early on, he says, the thing is, you are an American citizen and the East German government can't do anything to you. But I need to ask you that if anything if anybody asks you a strange line of questioning, please let me know because I need to be aware. He, Mazur, needed to be aware of of who might be, you know, uh, under the Stasi's uh, thumb. And so that was a very, very interesting uh, uh, situation to be in. It didn't make me distrust my friends around me. It just made me feel like like that every communication with my East German friends had this potential. Like they were, in a way taking their lives in their hands, befriending me and opening themselves up to me because potentially politically that could be used against them, that they had actually uh, learned something. Fascinating. I mean, and the amazing thing was I came back to the United States after that and all of my best friends, I mean, the, I had like 25 people who I considered amazingly close and wonderful mm -hmm. friends in the German language and in Germany. Uh, and, and when I came back to the United States, I realized like, I don't have any friends here who are as intense and open and authentic uh, with me as this whole uh, crew of East Germans. So I was like, you know, I was struggling with the language when I came back. I couldn't relax my mouth after three years of speaking <laughs> German. And also my mind had, you know, become Germanic as well. So, so it was kind of stiff in a certain way. And uh, anyway, but, but, but the time in Leipzig was, I have to say, just incredible. Both the, the musical experience playing in the orchestra and the conducting study through and with Mazur. Yeah. yeah, what was what was that experience like? Because obviously this was sort of towards the beginning of your time kind of learning to function as a conductor. What was what was it like kind of having Mazur as a mentor? What was it like starting to learn that skill that kind of requires you to think quite differently than if you were just functioning as a as a horn player in the orchestra? Conducting is quite different from uh from horn playing. Uh horn player, you're part of a team and you have an individual voice that has to mix with everybody around you. Conducting, you're kind of the leader of the team, but you don't make any sounds. You're an initiator mm -hmm. and an impulse giver, and you need a different kind of strong nonverbal leadership um, in order to rehearse well and to lead the flow of pieces uh, well. And uh, I kind of, when I first tasted conducting, had the feeling that it was this beautiful and it would be an easy expansion of my voice that I knew on the horn into uh, into just like bigger music making with the help of all these other wonderful musicians in front of me. But but it's hard to understand what you're actually doing as a conductor. And Mazur, um, you know, was a was a, a fine pianist, but he didn't actually play any instrument as well as I played the horn, which isn't bad. It's just that's true of, mm -hmm. of many conductors. Their talent largely is not the, you know, the excelling on one instrument and then translating it to conducting, but that they actually, conducting became their language of speaking to the world. Um, so I had already developed you know, this, this voice on the horn. And so for me, it was largely a translation process. And, and what attracted me to conducting, frankly, Cody, was how at the beginning of it, that everything that had fallen so easily to me as a conductor that had landed me at the age of 22 in one of the world's major orchestras with conducting, it was absolutely the opposite. So mm -hmm. horn playing was like, just easy, the world invited me. Conducting, although, you know, it was never like I was going to uh, fall off the world, uh, fall out of the world of conducting entirely, still, it felt like it was such a struggle. And, and I was just so bad at it for so long. And that was almost what attracted me to it because the other career path had led to success almost too easily, if that's, mm -hmm. if that's possible to say. Um, and that conducting, as I had my first you know, you know, negative experiences or failures, uh, just it, it made me think like, if I'm really committed to this, this is going to be a richer life course for me than actually sticking with this thing that I already know that I do well. I, I have to it's one of those things where as an audience member and perhaps even as a musician you might you might see the person up there on the stage kind of waving their arms and kind of 
wonder what what they're doing up there. Mm-hmm. But I would I would imagine based on what you said, it it forces you to think about music quite differently. You're in charge of the whole life of the piece, which usually has somewhere between you know twelve up to twenty yeah five or thirty different lines, all all put on a, on a page together. So one of the skills you have to develop is the ability to read the, all those notes, which are you know top to bottom uh, like uh, happening. Uh, vertically simultaneously so you saw a big translation process that goes on and eventually you start to get good at reading scores the way you get good at reading a book mm. so that you so that you can actually uh, through this you know you go through that all that translation but you start being able to immediately sense what is behind the notes what's the uh, what's the the message or narrative or story that a, a composer is creating with this large collection of notes and that, I mean, there's that aspect, which is complicated. And then there's also just the psychological aspect of, of being a leader for lots of people mm-hmm. who are all, uh, as I was, and individually developed musical voices and personalities who, who care unbelievably deeply about music generally, but also excel in shaping the one voice. So, um, so a conductor has to, to learn how to suggest and encourage and, uh, and co-shape uh, an evolving performance in front of them. It's really not dictatorial at all. Or, or if it is dictatorial, that doesn't lead to the best music making yeah. because it, it negates the full humanity of, of, of the orchestra as a, as a living being in front of you. So it's complicated. Yeah. What was Mazur like as a mentor, as someone to learn this skill from, I guess, coming in as, at a, as a 22-year-old? He was like, just in terms of the size of his energy, um, he was like a lion. I mean, he was just uh, just gigantic. And also, he was, in East Germany, he was one of their most powerful citizens because despite uh, not being a member of the party, he was a trusted figure who had um, actually been almost forced out by the government of East Germany. And after them forcing him out or giving him nothing to do for a couple of years, he started he still made the decision to continue in East Germany after that. So mm. because of that, that uh, history, he was kind of trusted as really being in some larger sense for, uh, for the idea of socialism or the, the East German view of socialism, but without being uh, specifically uh, somebody that they could put political pressure on. So he was the one who could, was one of the only ones who could object to things that the government was doing. So after the wall fell in 1989, um, he was viewed throughout all of Germany and a lot of the world as one of the great leaders. And so huh. he was actually pr- proposed to be a potential president for <laughs> the new combined Germany, and to which his response was, am I such a bad conductor that now I have to become a politician? <laughs> <laughs> which I love. As a mentor, he was, how can I say, he was just bigger than life, which meant for me, since I was trying to become my authentic self and my own version of bigger than life, you know, whatever was right for me, I uh, I appreciated incredibly that his power to make things uh, happen for me in terms of like getting a career going, and I also his example and what he actually said about music to me. All of this was just totally shaping. But I did realize pretty quickly towards the end of my time that if I wanted to become the full me, I couldn't do it around such a big personality. Mm-hmm. And I was actually always going to be a little bit in the shadow, um, even with his full support of this of this other. Uh, big uh yeah human being and um i get along well with with big personalities and with famous people for whatever reason but i knew that if i wanted to become my own version of a conductor i had to just you know accept my own failures and successes and know that i owned them rather than co-owning them and doubting them in relation to somebody else how did he take that hmm Interesting question. So I had become pretty much a member of the family for those three years. I mean, I was this little 22-year-old American. He felt protective of me. Uh, so so I became very close with his wife, Tomoko, and I still am. Mm-hmm. His, his son, Ken, Ken David Mazur, uh, was just this little wonderful, joyous brat who I would like chase, chase around the house together. Uh, and he had a daughter, Caroline, who was living at home. I was just close to, I was really part of the family for those three years. So I think that there was some hurt when I decided to make this decision to not 
stay and continue my career as a conductor in East Germany, where he could really help me, but to go back and uh, kind of cut off in a certain way and and just you know start over again in in the states, and uh, that remained. <laughs> That that remained difficult for him. Like when I I didn't see him then for a bunch of bunch of years, but at least one of the times I saw him again was maybe four or five years ago, um, on one of his last concerts with the New York Philharmonic. It may have been a little bit earlier than that. And at that point, I had started teaching at Juilliard. My Juilliard students had a had a uh, talk with him. He was the guest conductor of the New York Philharmonic, where he had been music director in the nineties. and uh, he asked about their program, and they, they told him, yeah, you know, our teachers are Alan Gilbert and Jim Ross. And he goes, my Jim Ross? <laughs> and so they said, you got to go say hello to him, because they knew that there had been some, you know, mm-hmm. some interesting waters under our bridge. So I went to him at the concert, and the, and the first contact with him it was just so warm, incredible. And then the second sentence out of his mouth, after how wonderful it was to see me, was, we suffered a divorce. <laughs> and I'm like... And what does that mean? Immediately going back to the the fact that we were really close at some point, and then we had to to pull apart. And and for me, in a way, just to know that I counted as a human being that much in the life of a huge personality and the sensitivity of Mazur, that did something for me. It's not like I wanted to hurt anybody. I was making a, yeah, a decision on my own behalf, but um, but uh, but yeah, I, I made the right decision. Absolutely no regrets. And I have continued to grow and, and admire the guy from afar from all of those years before, um, throughout his life. And he died about maybe four years ago, something like that. And I was, was asked to come to his funeral. Mm. And it was a beautiful, beautiful event and reconnection with lots of people. After those three years in East Germany, um, where did you go from there? You obviously you came back to the States and you said you had a little bit of a little bit of a tough time kind of readjusting to life in the States, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, that was. I don't blame the states for that. It yeah, was, of it was the same states that I'd left three or four years before. It's just I was not the same after my experience living in East Germany, speaking a language, being a star, a superstar, recognizable to everybody in Leipzig, going out on stage, having people applaud for me. Then I made this decision to like not play the horn or not define myself as a horn player, but come back and be a conductor. And all of a sudden, like the 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 whole effect effect of that decision that I I myself had made, nobody forced me to do it. Um, was was just cataclysmic. I mean, I, I really fell into what I think was probably a pretty pretty deep depression. I didn't know really my way forward. Uh, there were, I mean, I, I started becoming, went back to Adam's. I lived in my parents' home first, made them miserable, went to uh, Adam's house at Harvard where I'd been a student and was asked to become a music tutor. Uh, uh, met people who would be incredible friends throughout the future again there in Adam's house. But my own life was just, I didn't really know the way forward. I, um, I had uh, been in Tangwood for a couple of summers, and it wasn't really, it was very slow going. Um, I, I got accepted to the Curtis Institute in their conducting program. So at the age of 27, I sort of started initial studies mm-hmm. in conducting, which, which people would have tended to do a little bit earlier than that. But um, So it's the, the whole feeling of needing to start over again and experience as an adult, what what people would have tended to experience a little bit earlier, that that hit me pretty hard. But I don't think I was, you know, um, it's not like life was doing anything bad to me. It was yeah. just the, it was it was a learning experience. And then you know, got in psychotherapy and just came out a much better person for having um, for having made that transition and uh, and also just much more understanding and compassionate for everybody else who struggles in life because I didn't struggle um in uh in fundamental ways uh for my career um until i went into conducting once once you've kind of found a path in conducting where did you kind of find an outlet for that obviously you said you you kind of you started doing this in the states but i understand you then went back to europe for a period of time and started to do it there as well yeah, I've yo-yoed back and forth yeah. a little bit, but uh, but at least each time I knew myself better. Uh, yeah, um, and, it's a good place to be. Uh, after yeah, after studying in Philadelphia at the Curtis Institute of Music and really not playing much horn at all, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, chosen as the music director of the Yale Symphony Orchestra, the undergraduate mm. orchestra. So I taught, and and it was also the discovery of teaching that whole side of yes. my personality, which happened during my time in Philadelphia. I mean, first when if you'd asked me when I was just a horn player whether I was going to be a conductor, and I'm like, 
what? No, that doesn't make any sense. Once I was a conductor and not a horn player, if you'd asked me if I was going to be a teacher, and I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, but but life unfolds, and uh, and I really felt like the the teaching aspect uh, uh, came into my life big time, both at Haverford and Bryn colleges, uh, and then up at Yale, very especially. Um, and at the and about four years into my time at Yale, I had this odd conviction. Really, just it came to me like a uh, like a ton of bricks in a way, like in my deep in my gut that my time at Yale was done, and that there was something else out there for me. And I often make uh, unwise-looking decisions that they seem from outside. Like you don't leave the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra to start becoming a maybe mm -hmm. bad conductor back in the states. No, I did that. And in this moment, do you leave the Yale University as a teacher in a, in a position um, in order to not even know what you're going to do after that because some some like conviction told you then <laughs> that there was something else out there for you? I've always believed those those uh, voices or those experiences inside me as being being part of a, a, a larger design for what my life be that's trying to communicate to me. And, uh, and at that point, I left Yale and uh, wandered around a little bit, even went back through Leipzig to say hello mm -hmm. to Masur and my old orchestra. And the horn players there were like, hey, you want to come back here? You know, like, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, maybe. And then they, they brought that to Masur, and Masur was like, Jim, you've just made this hard transition to actually become a conductor. To go back to being a horn in the orchestra doesn't make sense. And he was totally right. So, so I continued my diaspora. And before I knew it, I got pulled in by, um, by Spain, a country that I had no vision of in terms of classical music, but just ended up being this so much the perfect place for me in like 10,000 ways. Uh, so a town called La Coruña, which is in Galicia, up above Portugal, pulled me in. And uh, that became my home for the next uh, five years. I was playing at least part-time in the orchestra. I was co-principal horn, but they immediately asked me to do two things. One is to take over their school for young musicians, which was much younger than college age, mm -hmm. which was the only age that I taught until then. And then uh, they also asked me, gave me opportunities to guest conduct my own orchestra where I was playing. So before I knew it, I had a, um, I had this school that I was in charge of. I was guest conducting my colleagues. Uh, so some weeks sitting in the orchestra and the next week in front of the same colleagues and, and uh, penduling, uh, penduling, if that's a word, back and forth between the two. Then I also was asked to lead a chamber choir and uh, guest conduct around Spain. That started to work and also got connected with an amazing original instrument group in Paris called Les Arts Florissants. So it was just so rich. It was yeah. like, well, it's like, you know, five million different things happening around me in a corner of Spain where, where up until then, I just had no idea that even, you know, classical music would have uh, existed at all. Wear a mask, save a life. Face masks combined with continued physical distancing will help prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus in the Alexandria community. Spread the word, not the disease. I've always wondered in terms of music education and music students, their relationship to the professor, because part of it is obviously finding your voice, and I would imagine part of it as a professor is kind of cultivating that voice. How do you make sure that you give the student room to find their own voice while at the same time kind of tending to that kind of steadily growing garden of talent? Well, if I take the two sides of my um, uh, my musical, you know, voice or being, which is a little bit more what I can do on mm -hmm. the horn and what I can do as a conductor. I mean, I also play piano too. But if I just take compare those two, I am a vastly much better conducting teacher than I am or would be a horn teacher because the things that were easy and obvious for me uh, about finding my own voice on the horn uh, didn't allow me to figure out how to be helpful to people yeah. who don't have that happen to them automatically. And my struggles in conducting um, uh, really did help me uh, uh, be able to see and, uh, and assess what might be going on with people whose struggles are in conducting. It all reminded me of my own. So the amazing thing is like teaching and learning it starts to be very symbiotic yeah. and uh, starts to build off of each other. So I felt like my conducting actually got better the more I taught it. You can't learn something without also then wanting to share it with other people. So you, you come and then when you're in the moment you're sharing it with other people, there, uh, being there as a, a receiver in a way isn't just a receiver, it sort of feeds you back. Like you find yourself 
understanding things that you couldn't understand mm -hmm. um, uh, before you needed to articulate them to somebody out, uh, outside of yourself. And that's just a magical thing. So I felt like for my own growth and my deep understanding of what music is and what conducting is, uh, teaching has always been vital. Yeah, and that's obviously something that's persisted, I guess, from that point on. You've taught at kind of various institutions. I know you you were part of the conducting faculty at Juilliard, correct? I still am in a certain okay. way. Yeah, for, for, for seven years, I helped co-run the Juilliard Conducting Program with my, with my friend and colleague, Alan Gilbert, um, who at that point was music director of the New York Philharmonic. And so he was living right there in New York and very busy. And then I was living down here in D.C. with my full-time job at the University of Maryland. But for at least two years, I went up maybe three three times, uh, three weeks out of every four during the month to, to lead that program on Fridays and Saturdays um, uh, during weeks when he wasn't there. And we just shared the responsibility for the, mm -hmm. for the program. And then even after that became too much for me after two years, because it sort of felt like I had two full-time jobs instead of one, um, I, I continued at Maryland, but I, I remained in a, in a little bit less active capacity at Juilliard through the next five years. So that was a seven year total. Mm -hmm. And, um, and even now I, I go up maybe once a semester to continue to, um, to teach in, in the program there. Um, yeah. And so it was the combining of those two worlds, uh, you know, a large state university, yeah. like the university of Maryland with, uh, with one of the world's most famous conservatories and trying to be myself and be helpful, uh, with my worldview in both of those institutions simultaneously. That was great for me. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of fast forward here a little bit, but I'm kind of curious what, what brought you to Alexandria? Was it the connection to the university of Maryland? Um, I, I was there in Maryland, and when I do, when I do a job full time, I don't often look to be really active with lots of other things outside it. I mean, the Juilliard thing plus Maryland that was that was kind of calculated to be mm -hmm. a, a combination. But um, but uh, I don't think that I was. I mean, in I, I was my life was so full up with those things during those years that I wasn't even quite aware that um, uh, you know of the presence of groups. I knew they existed, but it's not like I thought of myself as a leader of them around the D.C. area, like uh, like the Alexandria Symphony. But um, but uh, I heard that they were going through a transition, and a great friend of mine sort of made sure that I was aware of that and wanted to put them in touch with me in the case I might be interested in, in, in the future of the organization, or at least help guide them a little bit if they were uh, going to choose a new music director. And... Um, and it was just very, you know, so I ended up giving, conducting a concert as a guest conductor um, two years before, two seasons prior to becoming music director. And I did that just just because the, it was the beginning of a, of a period of, of change for them. And what I discovered was both an orchestra that I really enjoyed making music with um, uh, and very, very markedly, uh, a culture of people like the board members around the orchestra and the friends of the orchestra that were so full of kind of a, a beautiful joy and commitment that they wanted to have their own orchestra and they wanted it to be something special in a town like Alexandria. I mean, Alexandria has lots of high standards for itself mm -hmm. and it has a has you know the big history and uh, and and progressive values somehow crunch smashed together all at once. Um, but really, the, these people who, who I all of a sudden said, those are the kind of people who are on the boards of American orchestras? I didn't know they could be so fun. Um, and, and it was really that combined with the music making that made me um, decide to actually put my name in for the process of becoming music director. So the, the following season, um, I was one of the four finalists chosen to... to um, uh, give a concert, and then by May of um, 2018, if I have that right, um, they had decided to offer me the job. So, uh, so I was there, um, uh, yeah, in uh, starting in the fall of um, 2018. One of the things that you've tried to do coming into the position, you're you're the the ASO's fifth music director, but you seem to have brought like a real emphasis on kind of. I guess expanding the canon, if that makes sense. Um, it does, yeah. Obviously, you came in the middle of the 2018 season, but since then, you've kind of tried to introduce more diverse voices to to what is being presented on the stage um, and through the music. Talk to me a little bit about, I guess, 
how you've aimed to kind of integrate new voices that we might not have heard before, either because they're minorities or because they're women for, for various reasons. Talk to me a little bit about that effort. Uh, from the point of view of classical musicians, one of the tragedies is how few great pieces are sort of recognized by, uh, by the world at large. And when an orchestra tries to figure out what they should be presenting, if they want to attract the largest audience, they go to the pieces that are the best known by those yeah. audiences. And for orchestras, there's only about 25 of them. So as a conductor and as an orchestral player, you find yourself repeating over and over and over again uh, a certain, you know, certain pieces, whereas uh, like in all around sides are all these uh, pieces that are not as well known just as fantastic and, and actually light up the players when they get a chance to to play things that they're not as familiar with. So I've always been committed to underdogs, you know, throughout my life and, and underdog pieces just uh, have always been a, um, a point of mine, not just, you know, on behalf of the peace, the life of the peace, but also on behalf of the health of the community so that so that it wouldn't you wouldn't have to rely on the same masterworks, uh, iconic uh, uh, pieces that everybody already knows, just uh, repeating those. So is that fundamentally, and then also uh, in the American orchestra specifically, uh, the the period in the forties, fifties, and sixties where where our music institutions uh, kind of became uh, very Europeanized. Maybe they always were, but um, uh, but they had European music directors, and then playing mostly European music, an occasional American composer. And you know, through the uh, ascendance of someone like Leonard Bernstein, we we uh, took on the the goal of trying to make American orchestras more connected to the communities around mm -hmm. us. Like fundamentally, that we were celebrating life of American Americans and composers, and what our life feels like here. And um, so I, I had the great, great opportunity to study with Bernstein a little bit, and I didn't realize it, but that was one thing uh, that he really infected me with, a kind of love for making, uh, making the uh, musical life of the American orchestra look and feel more like the life of America uh, outside of it when we walk around the streets. So you can't do that without um, supporting all of these other voices besides mm -hmm. the ones that have um, uh, that have easily found their way into the concert hall. I mean, and in my first season, the half of the programs had already been chosen, like the big pieces on the program, because they needed something to advertise their season with, and I wasn't chosen yet as music director. And I just noticed that that um, uh, that that Felix Mendelssohn was one of the symphonies that was chosen, and Mozart was chosen, and then on the last program, that there may have been an opportunity to do something by by Robert Schumann. Each one of those composers had either a wife or a sister who was seen at the time of their being as being just as uh, gifted as they were. Mozart had his little has his older sister Nanerol. She would play all the concerts with him, and she was a composer also. Um, Fanny Mendelssohn, just incredible. Um, Robert Schumann, Clara Schumann was his wife, and she was you know, not only a great composer, and uh, she was an amazing pianist, performer. So during their lifetimes, these people who became famous later on were unbelievably shaped by the models of mm -hmm. their sisters and these wives around them. So why do these women composers, why have they been eradicated by history? It just started to, to seem to me that there was some, some fundamental injustice that also you know, went uh, connected with my wanting to go for the underdog. So that was the beginning of it, but it, it translates into more than that, like uh, uh, Latin composers and black composers, and there's a whole history of musics that, yeah. that are in need of exploration, in need of presenting, not just because of the music, but because if we want to be an American orchestra, we can't we can't do without these voices that are part of our own history. How how challenging is it to balance that element of like pushing pushing the direction of the orchestra in new directions with mm -hmm. still playing the hits, I guess, um, that people know and love? It it is a challenge. I mean, um, and it kind of it's uh, part of it does require. Uh, asking the world of Alexandria yeah. and even our board to to be open-minded about what they what the orchestra actually is, what role it has to play. 
my, my goal is to have there be some kind of well-known piece on the concert that maybe, maybe a certain uh, uh, percentage of the audience, that's their reason for coming. But to try to present that piece in the context of other voices or other musics that throw that masterwork in a slightly different light. Like, I'm not interested in trying to play another good performance of a piece that everybody knows. That seems to me like uh, like just not such a valuable contribution to make in the world. But trying to play that famous piece of music um, uh, like with the prismatic effect of other uh, unexpected musics around it, that might make it come to life in a way that would be vital mm -hmm. for me and potentially for the musicians on stage and potentially for our audience members to experience a classical music concert in a way more like you experience uh, just a concert of a, a great artist or jazz musician or rock star where you show up at the concert because they're given a concert. You don't show up because they promised you that they're going to sing, you know, um, Hey Jude or, or anything else. It's like, like, no, you go because something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that, that, um, that aspect of unexpectedness and spontaneity has been missing from classical music and orchestras for a good, good long time. So that is one of the things that I'm committed to. And the diverse composers is part of that. And also just how we present concerts, like the strange things that, that happen that, that uh, are meant to sort of like throw people uh, off of their expectation of it being a ritual in order, hopefully, for the impact of the music to come through as being something new and fresh and vital and and of the moment. Yeah, I guess the does the imaginary, the concept behind the imaginary symphony kind of fit into into that mold? Because that's it's that's a really out there idea that it seems like people gonna... really responded to. <laughs> I mean... The orchestra did respond yeah. a lot. I'm sure some people in the audience probably had no idea what they were what they were and and the worst thing was we couldn't actually explain it very well beforehand what it was going to be but uh, the imaginary symphony was a creation in my brain that um uh with this commitment to underdogs I had a growing list of of parts of pieces, not even pieces, but um, it's usually like one movement of a symphony that was just so fabulous, um, but that the rest of the symphony either went on too long or wasn't quite as fabulous, and that I viewed as a reason why nobody would ever play, you know, the mm -hmm. Walton uh, first symphony. Um, it's like, well, that's, that's value lost, because uh, maybe I can put together in my own mind something that I construe as a symphony out of these misfit parts of other people's pieces that have that nobody would ever hear in a live concert, and so I pieced pieced together um, uh, these these great works into something that had a little bit of a symphonic shape. I mean, every each composer's language was different, so it was um, it was four movements of uh, four different composers from four different <laughs> eras and four <laughs> different pieces. So yeah, a little crazy, um, but. But for me, the hope was that if anybody, you know, particularly uh, liked any one of those movements, that could be a, a starting point of exploration for them to actually go and, and see and hear. Um, and of course, two of the women, uh, two of the composers were women and two were men. And, some, and there was a little bit of a, of a, of a war, um, pre-war, during war, post-war arc that we managed to construct as well. That made me feel like it had a, it had a shape of its own. What has the ASO been doing during this time? And what have you been doing to kind of cope with yeah. suddenly a massive disruption in, in your life and your job? I mean, so fundamentally, musicians whose lives have been made up of being paid to go and play in large groups for large groups suddenly the world over realized, look, that's not going to happen. Like, uh, mm -hmm. So every institution has dealt differently with how to be able to continue to support their musicians if they can't justify the paying of them by actually giving concerts where the organization earns. So that's just, that's just a really individual decision that um, even huge institutions like Metropolitan Opera have basically furloughed a lot of their musicians. Um, uh, so for me personally, though, I'm continuing to you know, function as the lead of the Alexandria Symphony, even though all of our concerts, at least through, um, uh, through the end of the summer, have needed to be officially canceled. Mm -hmm. so, so what does a conductor do who can't actually conduct anybody? Um, one thing that, that I, I made the decision to do very quickly was that realizing that this was going to be a time of challenge and need and uh, loss for, for many people, I developed a daily series of music, um, uh, a series that's curated by me, uh, where I pick some 
uh, it's either you know audio recording or YouTube clip of something that I find at the beginning was sort of like comforting, like a voice from mm -hmm. these times, something that I thought could help people with whatever anxiety they were experiencing as this virus uh, uh, became part of our lives. Um, and just on a daily basis to say two sentences about some piece of music, either what it means to me or what the piece itself means, why I might have chosen it for, for these times. And that's been going on now for seven weeks So um, okay. uh, and is, is continuing. And so that was the first little thing. Well, maybe I can be, a, a, be curatorial in my relationship with our, with our audience. The second thing I did was I started to play piano and horn much more than I ever have mm. been and producing producing some recordings of either only horn or only piano but now and then using some of the great platforms we have now like making combined playing chamber music with myself and it turns out um, I, I can read my intentions pretty well uh, uh, as, a, as a chamber music partner and those I would put out on my own Facebook feed but they also have been uh, been used by the organization uh, Alexander Symphony in a bunch of different situations as being being you know um, Jim their music director reaching out with the only music that's possible um, to represent the Alexandria Symphony right now um, and then this this latest one of the latest uh, uh, things that we've gotten going is is a series of concerts um, which came from an invitation from one of the retirement homes uh, uh, um, in Goodwin house where they just wondered whether as anyway some musicians could come and play in the courtyard uh, safely distance from each other so that Anybody who chose to could go sit separate in the large courtyard on a bench, but also all the people who had apartments could open their windows and just hear the music from above. So it's like a kind of triangular yeah. area, which was just perfect. So we set up in a triangle and um, and played a half-hour concert. Uh, and for all of us who for months had never been around other live musicians, just the three of us, it yeah. was such a joy to, to do this and also to know that we were offering something uh, like a, a sign of real life and, and music life going on to people who themselves had been forced into kind of a, a major isolation uh, as well. So that model is now kind of developing quickly okay. with other groups besides brass ones as well. So we're looking for every opportunity where an apartment building, a hospital, uh, um, you know, outside of a school, or outside of some place where something is happening, where the, the example of live music in a neighborhood could actually be meaningful to somebody. Um, and, uh, and we're starting to, to put, that, uh, put that out there. Uh, we're also just having to refashion uh, um, and think about our announced season next year mm -hmm. uh, because all of it is huge pieces, a bunch of them involving choruses. And so we need to translate our vision for the season into a couple of different forms. So, so we're trying to, do, we're in the middle of that right now, like refashioning our entire well-planned season um, into forms that also take into account that nobody knows when we're going to be able to come back together. It might need to be all outdoor concerts for the next three or four months. And once it goes indoors, are there any indoor spaces where we could play a certain kind of music that would safe, where it's safe for musicians to gather and rehearse and safe for audience to be able to come? It, it's really forcing all of us to, to, well, I guess appreciate what we had, but also to use our creative juices entirely and fully in order to figure out um, uh, how, to, how to make music still be a part of the world as it's evolving. And because the end goal and the timing of it is so vague, it's, um, uh, it feels like true creative work. And I am thankful that I am here in this moment of, of major transition and transformation of our world. I feel lucky. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, touching back on these performances that you're doing now at retirement homes, apartment buildings, it's it's one of those things where you hear all the time people attest to the therapeutic power of, of music and, and live performance. And now it's probably the most clear that it's ever been. Um, this is a bad comparison, but to know that string quartet was playing on the Titanic as it sunk, uh, you know, that also was like, well, what do we have to offer? You know, we're exactly, singing with yeah. everybody else in that instance, uh, but but maybe we can play something that would be a value. I don't think that our that our world is sinking. I think that it's just it's just uh, retransform, you know, making itself into something new. Um, but we're going to learn from it, and we're going to uh, we're going to be able to get through, and there will be heartbreaking loss uh, uh, along the way. And uh, um, everybody's going to have to to reconsider what their values actually are, what really matters. I think that music is not a luxury. Uh, I don't think of it as um, 
as just pure entertainment. Music has this possibility, strange possibility, uh, capability of, um, of the, I don't even know how to say it, speaking, speaking to our karmic or spiritual essence. You know, even if none of us believe in religion, or it doesn't even, it doesn't even, it's not even about that. It's, it just has this possibility to make you feel like that something essential is being expressed about what life is when you hear notes played in a certain kind of way. Sometimes there's words that go along with it, sometimes not. But um, uh, that act, you know, pointing to the essential meaning of life and music's uh, role in it, is is one that's going to, I hope, be, um, uh, yeah, as you say, just of incredible value and, and desire for people. Yeah, it's a real, it's, music is a real active connection in a lot of ways. Um, and I guess related to that, we kind of end our show every week with a kind of a, a through line from guest to guest, kind of connecting our guests as well. We have our guests ask the next guest without knowing who they are question, a general question to kind of, I guess, get a sense from Alexandrians what's going on. And so our last guest, who is actually the director of the health department here in Alexandria, Stephen, Dr. Stephen Herring, um, he asked you without knowing it was you, of course. He asks, what gives you joy? Beautiful. Thank you for the question, Stephen um, and Cody. It's, I'm going to say that one of the things that makes, uh, makes me incredibly joyous is just being alone with a sound that I am making that nobody else is necessarily hearing, but that pulls me both simultaneously inside myself and also realizing that it's going out into the world, even if only heard by the walls around me. So it's a fundamental connection, not just to music, but to actually just sound and sound making. Um, I make a lot of sounds. They are a source of joy for me, even when they're no source of joy for anybody around me. Um, I'm a noise maker, uh, a sound maker with my voice, with my horn, with my piano. Um, odd that I've chosen a, a, a career where you don't professionally make any sounds. You just like, you know, like uh, uh, shape other people's sounds. But, but living in that world of sound is something that has given me joy like, uh, 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 like, like no other. And because of that, I feel um, luckily well equipped to, uh, to keep my life vital and full of joy even in this quarantine time. Yeah, beautiful. Not knowing who our next guest is, what would you like to know from them? I think that what would be fun to know is what they have seen in this springtime that they are noticing for the very first time. Again, thank you for thank you for joining me, Jim. We've uh, we've spanned continents in our in our conversation. We've spanned notes. Um, and it's great to hear that you guys are continuing to do what you're doing in different ways and kind of adapting to the situation. So thanks for thanks for joining me, Jim. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome, Cody. It was an honor to be here. And thank you for uh, for for following my life through this whole conversation. And thank you, Alexandria. Take care and stay healthy.